Hey, this is Peter Dobson, and you're listening to What a Character, the podcast dedicated to character actors. Hey everyone, this is C. Thane Dixon, and on today's episode, I will be talking with the late Mitchell Ryan. In his final interview recorded five months before his death, Mitchell talks about being discovered by Robert Mitchum, getting arrested with Oliver Reed, and overcoming alcoholism. It's all that and more on today's episode of What a Character. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, before we get on with the show, I just want to tell you all about how you can help make this podcast a smash hit. As many of you may know, the success of a podcast all depends on the support of the audience. A good number of subscriptions, likes, and listens can help us attract high-profile guests, thus making the podcast a success. So let's say that you enjoy this show and you want us to make more episodes. Well, you can help us make that possible by subscribing to us and leaving reviews on podcast platforms such as Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, by liking and subscribing to us on YouTube, or by following us on social media. You can find the links to our YouTube channel as well as our various social media feeds in the episode description. And if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. Your help will be greatly appreciated. Now, on with the show. My guest today is a man who has played everything from a moonshiner to a Old West gunslinger to even a corrupt general. He started pursuing an acting career in the early 50s after serving in the Navy during the Korean War. And over the years, he has gained numerous roles in many on and off Broadway plays. In 1958, he was discovered by Robert Mitchum, who gave him his first film role in the film Thunder Road. Yes. After this, he nabbed various guest starring roles on shows like General Hospital, The Naked City, and The Defenders, among many others. In 1966, he got cast in his first regular TV role as Burke Devlin on the hit daytime series, Dark Shadows. Mm -hmm. After this, he appeared in prominent roles in such films as Monte Walsh, The Hunting Party, High Plains Drifter, Magnum Force, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, Liar Liar, and Gross Point Blank. Many of you may even recognize him as General McAllister from Lethal Weapon, or as Edward Montgomery from the hit sitcom, Dharma and Greg. Please welcome our guest today, Mr. Mitchell Ryan. Mr. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm very happy to be here. I uh, Just one thing I'd like to mention okay. before we get going is that all through the 60s, uh, uh, and while I was doing Dark Shadows, I was on Broadway. And I did uh, The Royal Hunt of the Sun, Evergenia at Aulis, Moon for the Misbegotten, Wait Until Dark with Lee Remick. <laughs> and uh, I was on the stage for about nine years in a row. And um, it was a great run. Then I got into the, um, we were on tour with Moon for the Misbegotten and uh, 
Lee Marvin and uh, Bill Fraker, who directed Monty Walsh, came to see the play and cast me in Monty Walsh. And I could not escape from Hollywood after that. <laughs> <laughs> so you were basically movie. a stage guy who got caught up in the film industry? Well, more or less, I, although I love the film industry. And the stage was uh, a very difficult uh, situation. I loved it when I was there and I was young and strong. And, and I didn't really um, worry too much about anything. But then I had a family and I had to start thinking about things like that. So um, it was um, it was kind of marvelous. Uh, uh, the film went, uh, there was so much television out here, plus films kept coming rolling. And so it worked out pretty good. The um, first film I did was with Robert Mitchum, uh, who you mentioned uh, uh, Roadrunner or uh, Thunder Road, Moonshiner. Thunder Road, and um, uh, he came down, he and his um, uh, assistant director, I guess, or whoever it was, uh, came to see me at the Barter Theater in 1957, when I was, uh, 1958, I think, um, I was doing a play there, and he came to see me, and he cast me in a small part in Thunder Road, so which was over in uh, Asheville. So I went over, you can imagine, can uh, just think about it, a young kid, 22 years old, um, 23, um, having his first scene in the movies, which he knew nothing about whatsoever. And his first scene was a two minute scene with Robert Mitchum. So I was, uh, uh, you can imagine, uh, pretty um, nervous about the whole thing. So anyway, he came out of his dressing room or his Winnebago or whatever it was, and uh, looked over to the director and said, "Where's, who's, what's up? And uh, the director said, must have said something like, uh, the scene with Jed, and there he is over there. So he walked over to me. And he was uh, getting bigger and bigger as he came, got closer and closer. And then um, he came right up to me and and he said, I'll never forget it. Uh, um, I want to tell you one thing, son. I'm Big Mitch and you're Little Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, so I, and then he said, uh, you want to shoot this effing thing or shall we rehearse? And uh, so we shot it. I said, let's shoot it. So we did. And what he did was really extraordinary because I was so nervous. I blew a take and I, I just wasn't very good. And so we started again and I was just too nervous and it wasn't very good. So he blew a take, uh, which was something he never did ever. So I didn't realize at the time, but he had done it on purpose to relax me. And then he said, we all blow, them, blow a take every now and then. 
And uh, after that, we became kind of friends and he, he befriended me and I drove back to California with him. It's all in this book that I wrote called Fall of a Sparrow, which is out now on Amazon. It's available for anybody who wants it. It's a wonderful book about an actor's life and about uh, family and sons and and acting careers and actresses and all sorts of things. And um, I suggest everybody read it. It's a beautiful book. Anyway, it's in that book also, uh, the, that whole thing. I drove out to California, which I had no idea what it was. So I uh, then took the Greyhound bus back to New York. <laughs> Well, well, I got to say, your your autobiography was beautifully written, and I just want to tell our audience about something you, you mentioned in the book and I, that I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned in your autobiography that when you were a child, uh, you would create characters and sort of go through life being those characters, and it got to the point where you didn't really know who you were anymore. How did you have a difficult time separating reality and fantasy? I still have a difficult time. <laughs> Is that but, the norm for actors? Yeah, well, to a degree. But the um, the thing about, uh, and I, I don't know where it came from. It must have come from my early uh, upbringing. But um, I, uh, I used to love to uh, uh, make a, a movie out of things. And I was obviously the star of the movie, and everybody was a character. Everybody I met and talked to was a character in the movie. And this was a very, uh, I, I felt at the time, probably the psychiatrist would have a wonderful time with it. But uh, <laughs> I felt that it was kind of wonderful to play these parts, you know, in, in all sorts of different walks of life, wherever I happen to be. Then when I got in the theater, I didn't have to do that anymore since I had all these marvelous plays to do and and uh, turns out I was pretty good at it. So it worked out pretty well. And uh, I always was sort of a character actor. I, I never was really a, uh, a leading man, certainly not a classic leading man. And um, I played a lot of villains and I played a lot of uh, parts that uh, I had to bring a lot of uh, imagination to because I I uh, I didn't know them or you know they were they were uh, foreign people to me so I had to invent them and and it turned out to work. At what point did you realize that, hey, I can I can turn this into a career and that I really should pursue a career as an actor? Well, uh, um, what happened was um, my sister, after I got out of the Navy, my sister was in a play and uh, I went to see it. She prevailed upon me finally to go see it. And I did. And um it was fascinating. It was like incredible. It was, it was a play called Dark of the Moon. If anybody knows that, it's an extraordinary theatrical play about witches and, and all sorts of Barbara Allen and 
sexy ladies and witches and whatnot. And I, um, so she took me backstage and I met the director and he said, come and see me tomorrow. I want to put you in a play. And I said, wait a minute. I, uh, he said, no, just come. We'll talk about it. So uh, I did. And he cast me in a play called Bus Stop, which was uh, just released, had been on Broadway and and the movie hadn't been made yet with Marilyn Monroe. And so um, they, they helped me and they, they uh, the, uh, uh, a friend of mine, Warren Oates, who was, who should be on this show, but of course he's dead, um, was, uh, was in this play. And right after that, he went to New York and then he went to Hollywood and did very well. But he, um, he helped me and so did the director. And, and when the, when it was opening night, I was very nervous, of course. And, um, when I got out there, said my first line, everybody laughed and it was great. I mean, I just all of a sudden felt at home and felt that I, I, I could stay here for a while. You know? So it worked out great. And then I went on, worked for him for a while. And uh, he got me a job at the Barter Theater, which was the State Theater of Virginia. So I, I went on, that was a professional theater. So went from there. Then I went from there to New York later after the uh, uh, Thunder Road interval. I had no idea you were friends with Warren Oates. What, what do you remember about Warren? Oh, Warren was, uh, first of all, a wonderful actor mm. and very helpful with me when I first started. And uh, I ran into him after I, he was in Hollywood and pretty well established by that time. And, and by the time I got out there, uh, he was doing really well. And um, he uh, cast me in a movie that he was doing called Chandler. And uh, um, Sean and I, it was in San Francisco, we shot it. So it was kind of great fun. And uh, that was, it was sometime before I got sober. So I was still drinking quite a bit at that point. Mm -hmm. I think right after that is when I got sober, right, or close after that. Yeah. So what do you remember about working with Clint Eastwood on Magnum uh, Forest and on High Plains Drifter? Yeah, that was great. Uh, um, somewhere in there, I, you know, the chronology is a little fuzzy. I um, I got called to go to Universal where he had his offices, El Paso Company, and talk to Clint Eastwood about um, 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 I think it was High Plains Drifter. Yeah, that was the first one, High Plains Drifter. And I went there and met him and he was eating a sandwich and he was extraordinarily friendly and simple and direct and, and said, uh, we're going to do this movie 
I mean, I'll never forget this. It was just extraordinary. It was so opposite of what I had image I had of of him. Mm. He said, "We're going to do the movie up in the High Sierras. Have you ever been in the High Sierras?" And I said, uh, "No." He said, "Well, you're in for a treat. It's one of the most beautiful and gorgeous places in the world. It's the." It's the most beautiful mountain range. Even the Alps can't touch it. It's not as high as some, but it's beautiful. And I, I said, I said nothing. I was flabbergasted, but because it was so opposite of what I had suspected him to uh, to be like, and he was quite then. Then when I got there, his directing. Um, uh, mode was quite lovely and and very gentle and sweet and right to the point there was no uh, fussing and budging around and no uh, hysterics or throwing anything and and uh, but he did print the first take and even if you said oh, gee clink could i have a i can do better than that can i no no you were beautiful. It was fabulous. Don't worry about it. And the only time I did two takes in the whole movie was at the end, near the end, when I was shot down into Mono Lake. And uh, they put a, a rope on a, a pulley thing on me. And I got shot and jerked into the lake crash into the freezing water of Mono Lake. And uh, as I got out, uh, when somebody came over with some towels and things and started to, you got to go to your dressing room, get, and Clint came and said, oh, Mitch, both cameras failed. We're going to have to shoot it again. I said, no, no, the first take was the best. <laughs> and he laughed and said, no, we got to shoot it again. There's no film on it. So. We shot it, I had to shoot it again. I had to get it all dressed again and get all the, the second uniform on and costume and get everything ready and everything. And and uh, so I got shot into the lake again and I was coming out, there wasn't anybody there. And then from the top of the hill and with a bullhorn, Clint said, we'll see you at the bar, Mitch, drinks on you. <laughs> What a nice guy Clint was. You never hear anything bad about him. No, you don't. I mean, it's really amazing. He was like, it's like your grandfather or something. <laughs> you know, I'm sure he'd love that. But So what do you remember about working with Lee Marvin on Monte Walsh? Well, Lee and I became very good friends uh, uh, for uh, many years until he died very young he was 63 and he shouldn't have died he had pneumonia and and uh, they put a respirator down him uh, his throat and he fought it and then had a heart attack mm. but he was uh, as all these guys mitchum and and um, lee and everybody who has these reputations for being big, irascible drunks and 
it's just a show because he was a very uh, uh, ex extraordinary intelligent man and amazingly well informed and a marvelous talker uh, and so was Mitchum they both were wonderful raconteurs and um, oh by the way I did another movie with Mitchum uh, some years later which was great fun uh, can't remember the, name. the friends of Eddie Coyle yeah the friends of Eddie Coyle turned out to be a great movie uh, really wonderful movie yeah, that's a that's a great movie. I think it's one of Peter Yates's best films. Definitely, yeah, it is. It's an extraordinary yeah. movie, and and uh, everybody in it's great. I mean, they're all good. And anyway, Lee turned out to be a very good friend, and he be probably visited him many times down in his uh, in his uh, house down in Tucson. He moved down to Tucson to get a. Get, a, get the dry air for his uh, emphysema. Funny thing, they were probably the cigarettes that killed him more than the whiskey. Now, there's been a lot of varying stories as to why you left Dark Shadows. What was the real story behind that? I got fired. <laughs> oh, was there a disagreement, a creative disagreement? No, I was... Uh, I was uh, drunk a couple of times, and oh. and uh, actually, it turned out that uh, the producer, the the creator, uh, I forget his name, uh, really, and I were very good friends, and he was very sad to have to do this, but he said we can't uh, wait for you. It's a, and we the, the things were shot live in those days because they had no tape. Tape wasn't invented till the next couple of years, or it worked out, or however they do that. And it was very unfortunate. I, I didn't like being there. I didn't like it much, but actually, I was very good in that part, and probably would have done very well with the thing. But uh, I was glad to leave. I was also doing wait until dark in the evening, so I was exhausted all the time so and you know soap operas you have to especially live you have to know all the lines all the time every day a whole show whole hour show every day which is impossible now this there's a story that you got oliver reed fired on the set of the hunting party what was the story behind that no oh. It was Oliver Reed got me fired. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what happened? Well, we, um, it was a, um, God, I love Spain. It was a wonderful place. But uh, Oliver uh, uh, found a, a soulmate in me because we used to love to drink together. And we did. And we drank a lot. And uh, we uh, we never missed a take. We were never late. We were we disrupted the neighborhood. Uh, sometime one time the LaGuardia Seville, which is the sort of secret police, state police of of uh, Spain for for that um, for the uh, dictator. I forget his name and. Um, uh, 
have always been there in a way. And they were called a couple of times when we were sort of making a lot of rowdy noise in bars and things like that. But so they couldn't fire him. So they fired me. And the story is uh, an amazing thing. I, I went home, I flew home. I was there for a while. You can imagine I was depressed to get, you don't get fired from a major movie and not feel bad about it. And I thought, well, it's pretty much over now. The whole thing is a mess and uh, I don't know what I'm gonna, maybe I'll go back to New York and work. And then I got a call or Walter from my agent, Walter Bagel and said, uh, uh, are you sitting down? Um, they want you to come back and finish the movie in Spain. Oliver Reed will not act with the guy who replaced you. He was waiting for you to come back and he won't do anything until they get you back, which was wow. <laughs> incredible uh, story. I mean, it was like, holy God, this doesn't happen. This kind of stuff doesn't happen. So uh, back I went and did it and I was finished it and it was okay. And that was, uh, and then actually the producer of that movie, <coughs> excuse me, hmm. uh, cast me again in a movie called The Honkers, which is, was a, uh, um, rodeo movie which was kind of good a nice little picture and uh uh i uh had to do uh i remember it was extraordinary i had to the director said could we get a shot of you on the horse coming out of this doll uh with the rope uh getting ready to uh, uh, rope the calf and all we need is just you coming out. We don't need anything else. So, so um, I said, okay, so the uh, Slim Pickens, I don't know whether you know Slim Pickens. Oh yeah, know? yeah, definitely. Yeah. Slim Pickens is a wonderful actor and a marvelous friend. And he was playing the guy who helps you uh, up there. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was his uh, thing in that scene. And um, so he said, Don't worry, Mitch, you won't, you won't, uh, drunk as you are, you, you, uh, you won't die, you won't get hurt or anything. You might get killed, but it won't hurt a bit. And so out I went galloping across the plains and got bucked off and slammed on the floor. And, and uh, <laughs> it was a, <laughs> total mess and very funny everybody laughed except me which was hurting and that was a fun movie to do that you know actually with all all the rodeo great rodeo champs were there and they were great they were incredible galloping about and everything and uh so uh what happened next? Oh, then I went to do the movie with the Warren Oates. Which Sorry, film was that? That was Chandler. 
January, yeah. So you've worked with actors like Oliver Reed and Lee Marvin, and it's always been amazing to me how they could show up drunk, but somehow uh, stiffen up and give a performance when the camera started rolling. What was their secret to working under that kind of condition? I don't know. You just do it. I did it a couple of times, too. But the thing is, uh, you aren't as good. (laughs) You think you're as good, but you're not as good. And uh, and uh, you caught your you're a pain in the ass, actually, is what you are. But uh, there's nothing you can do about stars. And uh, and uh, most of them aren't as drunk as they pretend to be when they get there. And they give a pretty good performance most of the time. Sometimes they don't. Actually, Lee came, I think, maybe three or four days, which they had to change the schedule. They couldn't shoot him. So that was his malady, you know. It was a sad thing, but that's the way it works with actors. Sometimes, not all of actors, just a few. How did you overcome your bouts with alcoholism and find sobriety? And and what advice would you give to actors who might be struggling with an alcohol issue or might be on the verge of of dealing with that? Well, I, uh, I, um, I, I I was really, uh, uh, it was about over. I mean, I was in the worst shape that uh, anybody could imagine. And I was uh, not only sick, I was uh, incredibly depressed. And uh, uh, life was just uh, hideous. And uh, Mm -hmm. so um, uh, one morning I woke up and called the only person I knew who was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he came and got me and I went to a meeting. And that's how it started. It wasn't an easy for the first year at all. But uh, I stuck and it finally worked uh, pretty good. And I because I, I wanted to mm-hmm. stop, I wanted to stop really bad. And uh, that's the only way. If you want to do it, uh, you're the only person who can. Nobody can tell you how to do it or where to go or anything because you won't listen. Most alcoholics say, ah, hell with it. You know? But if you're really hurting so bad that you want to want to be alive, you go and see what it is. You know? And I did. And it worked. Thank God, 50 years now. Very good. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. It is, uh, it is uh, a good, well, I have a life. I had a life and I had a lot of uh, work after that and a lot of uh, marriage and a lot of houses and just a lot, a lot of good life, a lot of kids and grandkids. And so things worked out pretty well on that scale. It's all in the book, actually. It show, uh, uh, I go through it, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, story is, story's okay. I mean, it, it goes, you know, it's typical in a way. 
Uh, and, but I feel over the six years I wrote it, I learned how to write and I am still writing. I'm writing short stories now and working on another book about my mother. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I really love writing as much as I loved acting in the old days. And it's, uh, it's great to learn how to really write and really give yourself to it. It's a wonderful thing. You know? It's a great way of expressing oneself. Yeah, very good. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. What do you remember about working with George Armitage on Gross Point Blank? Well, Gross Point Blank. With John Cusack and yeah, Danny Driver. I, um, I had a great time. Uh, Armitage was good. He was, he's a partner of uh, Cusack's, I think. At least they were close, very close. Mm -hmm. And they both sort of wrote it. And um, the c script was very clever. It worked out really well. And uh, Cusack is a wonderful, wonderful actor and had a uh, and all these other marvelous actors that were in that. Yeah, we just had a glorious time. We had fun. And the Mini Driver was delightful. And uh, I recommend getting in the bathtub with Mini Driver. I think it's probably one of the best things you can do. And uh, that got a great laugh everywhere. And uh, and the whole thing was was fun. He's a very articulate man and a very astute fellow. And he, he and uh, he and Cusack worked together really well. They had a good working relationship. The idea that they, uh, I think, formed a company together. I'm not sure, but I think they did. Yeah. Let's take some fan questions. Usually when I do a show, I'll put out a questionnaire on Facebook, Instagram, social, oh. you know, social media. And I'll say, mm -hmm. hey, I'm having so-and-so on the show. Uh, do you have any questions for him? So here we go. Corey Robinson asks, how did you develop your character for Lethal Weapon? Well, um. Uh, Corey, uh, are you an actor? If you're an actor, uh, one of the important things about acting is um, wardrobe, oddly enough. And there was something about this leather coat, this leather jacket that I wore in the whole movie that gave me a kind of idea and when I first put it on, about what kind of a guy this was, who would wear casual uniforms when he was in Vietnam. And when he found the situation uh, that he wanted to do, wanted to be with, it would be very casually worked out and very simply handled and no filly-dilly. So that gave me an idea about how to play the part. 
and how to and so I tried to bring that out in all the different scenes, all the different um, uh, connections I would have, and uh, and the, the kind of uh, it showed uh, finally in a, in a wonderful way of the way I walked uh, Mel Gibson after I captured him at, near the end there, and I we were had this dialogue walking over to the uh, to where the other guys were and uh, it worked out pretty good you know and I think that's the way I sort of approach a lot of parts you know it was the the uh, uh, not specifically the wardrobe but maybe a prop or maybe something about a character that reminds me of something that I know about you know I hope that's enough for you. Yeah. Ario Ailman asks, uh, how was it working on Hot Shots Part Two? Or... <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> but I did do remember that uh, I was at that hotel in the bar and um, Marty Sheen's son, uh, what's his name? Charlie Sheen. Charlie came into the bar and said, oh, Mitch, how are you? Hey, you want a little part in this play, in this movie? Oh, sure, what are you doing? And he told me, and that's how I got the part. And I went in the next day and uh, did it. <laughs> <laughs> it was like uh, one of those... Uh, funny little things. And it was kind of a fun part. I mean, it was interesting anyway, and it was uh, fun. And and I, and uh, it wasn't that much or anything, but it was, it was nice. And that sometimes that's how it happens. You want to be in this movie? <laughs> Alex K asks, what's the best advice he's given to up and coming actors trying to break into Hollywood? Patience. <laughs> Patience is one thing. Um, God, it's hard. It's a, you're in a tough business. And um, I was lucky. I was incredibly lucky. And a lot of people aren't. And a lot of people are better actors than I who aren't lucky. And uh, uh, the thing is perseverance and try to find somebody who, who an agent or a manager who will really believe in you and really try to get you a job because that's what you need is a job, a nice part that shows what you can do. And then you got that tape, you have that film, and you can show that and somebody can pick it up. I'm sure you know all this, but um, that's, that's the best way, I think, because if you have some good film on yourself, you can show them what you can do. Mark Johansson asks, is it true that you were once considered for the role of Captain Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek The Next Generation? Yes, I was. 
I was uh, uh, not considered. I was in the last two with uh, the British guy. Patrick Stewart. Patrick, yeah. And, uh, and they went with him. That's how it was. Because I was, uh, I was very highly considered with him, but I think they went with him because he was, he was more elegant British, and you know they wanted that kind of. They didn't. Mine was a little more rough uh, uh, and frontiery kind of thing, you know. And I think they finally decided to go that other the other way, because we were two uh, completely different types. Well, Mr. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on my show today. Um, oh, and thank you for your service. It's a great pleasure to be here. And thank you very much for everything. And I want to ask you a question. Okay. What is all that stuff behind you? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a microphone. There's some lights. Uh, yeah, actually, th this is a wallpaper. This this is oh, not I a studio. <laughs> I, I fooled so many people with this. Yeah, you could have fooled me. I'll tell you. <laughs> Look at that great studio that guy's in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. You're very welcome. Well, that about wraps it up for our interview with the late, great Mitchell Ryan. We here at What a Character send our condolences to Mr. Ryan's friends and family. Mr. Ryan was not only a great actor who left behind memorable performances, but he was also a great and humble man who overcame an obstacle that many Hollywood actors failed to overcome. He will definitely be missed. Now, before we end this episode, I just want to remind you that if you love the show and you want us to grow in popularity, you can help us do that by rating and reviewing this podcast. You can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. You can even leave a review of our podcast on our website at whatacharacterpodcast.com. Just click on Rate Show and you'll be taken to a page where you can give your critique of the show. And while you're there, you can even donate to our podcast by clicking on the PayPal link and submitting your desired amount. And don't forget to subscribe to our email mailing list if you want to receive email alerts about upcoming shows or even receive email-exclusive episodes of our show. You can do this by typing in your name and email address on the right side of the homepage and clicking on subscribe. Now, if you want to reach out to us, please feel free to do so. If you have any guest suggestions or you just want to tell us how great you think the show is, you can do so by sending us an email at westgrovemedia at gmail.com. You could even leave us a voice message on the show website by clicking on the microphone button on the bottom right and recording a message. And please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. And if you watch us on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, please give this video a like. All in all, your support will definitely help us not only make the podcast successful, but it will be greatly appreciated as well. Anyway, that about does it for this episode of What a Character. Join us next week for our interview with Jake Busey, where he will talk to us about how he helped his father overcome drug addiction, why he kept pissing off Paul Verhoeven on the set of Starship Troopers, and why he turned down a role in the cult classic film Zoolander. It's all that and more on next week's What a Character. Thank you for listening, and take it easy. Bye. Bye.
Mr. Mendez is here. Ah, Mr. Mendez. How are you? Hey, I'm fine. Where the hell did you get him? Psychos or us? I don't think you're funny. I don't think this whole goddamn setup's funny. You're using mercenaries, for Christ's sake. Tell me I'm wrong. No, you're not wrong. <laughs> and you expect me to trust these fucking bozos? My people are loyal, Mr. Mendez. They are loyal to me. <laughs> oh, bullshit. Do you smoke? What the hell does that got to do with anything? Do I smoke? Do you smoke? Yeah. Give me your lighter. My, my lighter? Your lighter! Yeah, okay, I, yeah, right here. Here, take it. Hey, man, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? Shut oh, your mouth! Jesus Christ! Shut up! Don't move. Oh, hey, man. Mr. Joshua, your left arm, please. Oh, hey, man, you guys are fucking gone. You know what I'm saying? Oh, Jesus Christ, man. You guys are fucking... Have Indo look at that, Mr. Joshua. Yes, sir. You wish to do business with us, yes? Jesus Christ. You wish to make a purchase, yes? Oh, uh, yeah. Yes, yes, Jesus Christ, yes. Yeah. You know, you guys are out there like fucking Pluto, man. You're gone. The bulk of the heroin will be here Friday night. We'll make delivery at that time. Have the money ready and no tricks. If you try anything, you'll have to talk to Mr. Joshua. Yeah, right. Joshua, yeah, right. I got you. Yeah. Merry Christmas. <laughs>